joy when you sing. It's always a blessing. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you again to turn to Romans chapter 7. You know, many, many, many years ago, uh, when I was uh, just a guy getting into the ministry, I uh, heard an old preacher say one time that the job of every church is to basically find out what the, uh, the real issues are in that particular culture by which that church exists. And then to do everything within his power through the Word of God and, and gear all his energy to, to penetrating his culture by meeting those needs. And I, uh, I, I never forgot that, and I, I think that's very good advice to any young pastor that's trying to build a church or anybody that's trying to minister. You know, and I've been around the world many, many times and over the years and preached many, many different places and saw many, many different needs. And I can attest today that uh, in America, you know, our need is not uh, the needs of the rest of the world. Much of the world is starving. Much of the world is in poverty. Much of the world is in apostasy. And uh, there's places where uh, that it's unbelievable uh, hardness toward the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. But America's need uh, is, is, is more specific. America's need is, and I've said it many, many times jokingly, but it's true. America's need is America's an insane asylum and it's run by the inmates. And America is in a desperate situation today. She's in that desperate situation because of her rejection of the Word of God. I've said many, many times, and another old preacher told me this, is the only thing that men never learn from history is the fact that men never learn anything from history. And we are at a place now in America where we, are, we see the results of that. I've talked to you many, many times about, and I made a mention last week about the seven laws in the Bible, absolute laws, and I gave you two of them pertain to us. One of them is the law of human collapse that's found in the book of Judges. The other one is found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, which simply says, which is the law of sowing and reaping. America today is, is feeling the full force of the brunt of rejecting and, and, and violating those two laws um, for over 100 years now. And our job as a church is to reach out to broken people, hurting people, people who, like I said last week, our job is to be, uh, just give out uh, fire insurance. If you're unsaved here this morning, our job as a church is to ensure by the Word of God that you know that you can go to heaven and be protected against the hell fire of damnation of hell. If you're saved here today, we can take you to the Word of God and help you get the insurance that you need at the judgment seat of Christ. You will not be, uh, all your works will not be burned up, yet saved that so by the fire. Uh, that's our job. My goal is to, to reproduce in you the burden that God has put into me to reach out to our own culture. And that's why everything that we do, everything I try to accomplish with you, whether it be on Sunday morning, Thursday night, even through the Bible basics class, my bottom line goal is to get you foundationalized in the Word of God and then build upon that foundation that at some point in your life, you can take a piece of this ministry before the Lord comes back and do something with it. Too many of God's people are running around like little rats in a maze looking for the magical cheese at the end of the tunnel. And it's not cheese, folks. It's gold, and it's in this book. And at some point in our lives, we need to put aside the world and realize that God saved us for a purpose. This is the point of what we're trying to accomplish here uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You know 
that we have been coming through all of the books of the Bible, showing how that Christ is portrayed in each book of the Bible. We now are in 1 Corinthians. We're going to finish out the New Testament. But we came to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and in the context of doing that in the books of the Bible, I've been kind of giving you the outline of the books. But when we came to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I told you that we need to clear off a little spot here and talk about some things because this is where America's issues really lie. We have talked now and defined the three institutions that God has ordained, haven't we? We know what they are now. We talked about them again Thursday night. We now know that God designed a structured marriage. That's the first institution back in Genesis. Then we saw in Genesis 10 how God established the institution of civil government. Now we know why. And then we know that in the New Testament, then God establishes the New Testament church. Anything in this planet, any nation, any country, any person will rise and fall on what they understand and what they do with those three institutions. Because those are the things that God put into our lives uh, to make the whole thing work. And so we have got into 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We've been talking about that as the key chapter for the New Testament church on the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I'm not by any stretch of the imagination trying to take this and make this a marriage course. That's not my goal. I mean, I know that when you teach anything, people will get out of it what they need, and that pretty much takes care of itself. But my real goal here my goal is not to beat up anybody who may be through a bad relationship or multiple relationships. That's not my goal. My goal is to educate you from the Bible as members of this New Testament Bible-believing local church that you understand the foundation of why our society has the problems that it has, that you are better equipped as the missionary out of this church to your job, where you work, to the people that you associate with, your friends, your relatives, your enemies, that you can take the Word of God and have a basis in your own life that when God sends them to you, we talked about the concept of a prepared sinner and a prepared servant. Gave you the great example in Acts chapter 8 of the Ethiopian eunuch. There's a man that God prepared who was a sinner, but God had to have a prepared servant to get the Word of God to him. Personally, I think today, to be honest with you, God's got much more prepared sinners than he's got prepared servants. Because God's people won't do what they need to do today. And I want you to know and understand that as we get into the Word of God today, I'm trying to help you with this. I want you to take this material, learn it, understand the rules of engagement, so to speak. Not engagement like marriage, but dealing with people and their problems. And come away as a viable force that when God has somebody who needs the truth, somebody who's hurting, somebody who's went through a bad marriage, somebody who was in a bad marriage, somebody who is not in a marriage at all yet, but they're headed for a bad marriage, you know, that you can have the material to be able to use. Now, I want to begin uh, in reading here, and I'm going to read down in the first 14 or 15 verses, and we'll, I want to try to go back with what we've already covered and add to it so it stays into a, you know, in a continuity form. But uh, last week we laid down two great rules. And I told you that there's about 20 rules in this chapter that you want to remember. And I showed you last week how that, that rule number one was that in the Old Testament there were grounds for divorce. But in the New Testament there are no grounds for divorce. And we talked about why that is. 
The second rule was we talked about that in understanding your call for God and understanding the call for the ministry that Paul says, as he says there, that it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And he talks about the fact that, that God gives some people the gift to stay single, that they in their lives and their relationship with God can just do a better job single than they can married. That's not for everybody, not for most people. But it is a gift that everybody needs to look at and understand uh, because Paul is laying all of this out. Then I showed you three key verses here, verse 6, verse 10, and verse 12. And I showed you by these verses how that the reason why most churches get so fouled up in their teaching on divorce and remarriage and all of the things that go along with it and marriage is because they keep going back to the Old Testament. They go back to Deuteronomy 24, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19. And I showed you from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that this is the teaching. And by those three verses, I showed you that Paul says things and gives extra revelation and conditions to the church that he never gave, God never gave to the nation of Israel. And the reason for that is one's under law, one's under grace. I, don't, I told you I don't know of any issue that God deals with in the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament that doesn't change simply because of the fact that one's under the Old Testament law and today we're under the New Testament grace. Why, when they died, they didn't even go to the same place. With Abraham's bosom, now we go to straight to heaven when we die. So, you know, today as we move through this passage, again, we'll look at, we'll begin to put together in a more better way now that we have some of the principles down and we'll see some things that God gives to the church under grace that he does not give to Israel under the Old Testament. I think today is going to be an eye-opening uh, time for you. I think it's going to pull a lot of things together. And then what we'll do is we'll move into the next realm and we'll lay some foundation down there and we'll come back and tie all that together. And that's how you're going to learn this chapter. All right, let's pick it up in 7.1. Now, concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto his wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power over his body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempts you not for your inconsistency." But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. There's one of our verses. I would that all men were even as myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God. Therefore, it's a gift of God. One after this manner, another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them uh, if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And under the married I command, yet I but the Lord, let the wife not depart from her husband. But if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. There's another one of our verses. If any, man, if any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let her not put her away. And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. <clears throat> a brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. Father, we do thank you, praise you today. Uh, Holy Spirit of God, open up our hearts, open up our ears, and let us listen today as we talk about these great principles and for the purpose of helping people. Uh, Lord, uh, it does no good to continue to hurt hurting people. 
Uh, we have to take people, <clears throat> that's part of our job, to look throughout our society for the downtrodden, for the ones that life has left in its, in its dusk, and to try to help them reestablish their relationship with God, be fruitful uh, for God, and to do what God has called them to do. We all make mistakes. We're all fragile. We're all made of clay. But help us, Father, to be <clears throat> understanding and to be sympathetic and to reach out for those who really want help to help them put their lives in a place where God can use them, no matter what their past has been. And we'll thank you now and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, we have come up to about verse 9 and verse 10, and uh, we're going to pick it up. We've discussed all this stuff and pretty much detailed it out, but we're going to pick it up here in verse 10 in just a moment. But, you know, I think one of the major problems in Christianity today uh, that makes people fall victim, uh, uh, that they fall victim to. And I've said this many, many times, uh, but I keep saying it because it's such an powerful thought that you've got to get into your mind, and it takes a while. But I think the major problem we have that wrecks our culture, that makes our culture just upside down uh, as far as Christianity is concerned, and remember, the Bible says that Bible is likened to salt. Christians are likened to salt. And as long as a Christian has the Bible in its any society, it'll preserve that society from decaying. But when the salt loses its savor, as the Bible says, when Christianity, when God's people lose their punch, when they lose the ability of the Word of God to help people in their problems, then everything is in disarray and begins to decay. And I think that the major problem that Christians have today is the fact that we have, uh, we have lost the important definitions of Bible concepts in the Bible. Now, it's understandable how this would happen. <clears throat> you know, you can't, you can't not lose your Bible and not lose some things in that Bible. I preached a message a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, about the seven things you lose when you lose your Bible. And uh, you know now what those things are. And one of the things that you lose when you lose the impact of the Bible and preachers preaching the Bible is you lose definitions of important things. You know, I, I learned this a long time ago, and I've, I'm forever here preachers doing this, and it just drives me crazy. How many times over the years I've heard some preacher get up and he starts his message by, he wants to preach on a concept in the Bible. And so he'll get up and he'll take the word faith, or he'll take the word grace, or he'll take the word this. And he'll get up and he'll start his sermon by saying, now Webster's Dictionary defines this word as, and then does the word. And I've heard that all of my life. And I, I chuckle when I hear it, and it, it's, it's, it's just the way things are. But you realize, and I'm all for Webster's Dictionary. I mean, we sell the 1828 edition back there, which was the first edition of Noah's Webster's uh, Dictionary that was put back in print. Noah Webster was a saved Christian, if you don't know that. He wrote a lot of the textbook material for the school system when it started under George Washington. And he was a great, great, great saved man and a great founding father. You just never hear much about him. He wrote all of the textbooks for the early schools. And all of those textbooks were based on God and the Bible. And, of course, Noah Webster put a dictionary out that was the first edition is one we've got back in print and we sell back there. Actually, in many cases, gives you the Bible verse that defines what the word is. And it's a pretty good dictionary. But just like everything else, you go to a bookstore today and buy Webster's Collegian Dictionary and uh, you won't get any Bible definitions anymore. You see, the Bible is its own dictionary. The Bible defines itself differently. The Bible says that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. Why would I think that I could go to Webster's Dictionary 
and to find something when Webster did ever on, on the best day of his life still had problems thinking like God. And today, you know, the dictionaries that you have are based on all of the minds today that are minds without God and without the Word of God. And you don't, you don't go to a dictionary to find a definition of something in the Bible. The Bible defines itself. The Bible's its own dictionary. The Bible's its own commentary. The Bible is built within itself by holy men of God who spake and were moved by the Holy Spirit of God. I'll give you an example. One of the greatest controversies in the world today, the Christian world, one of the greatest controversies in the Christian world is, is the issue of when does life begin and when does life end. I mean, people argue about it. The debates are endless. I mean, people kill each other over it. They fight over it. They argue over it. They break fellowship over it. It's, it's, the, it's probably the number of great controversy as far as the world is concerned. Does life begin at conception? Does life begin one month, two months, three months, four months? When does it begin? How about death? Does death, when you have no pulse, are you really dead? I mean, you have no heartbeat? Where do all these people come up when they say, you know what, I died. The doctor said I was dead. I was clinically dead, and I came back, and I want to tell you. I had a guy up the gym the other couple weeks ago come over and tell me about a book he just read. This guy's as lost as a goose. He knows I'm a preacher. He comes over and tells me about this book and how this guy died and came back, and he wants my opinion on it. And this guy died and all this stuff he stopped in heaven and everything like that. And I didn't have the heart because, you know, I mean, I'm not as three-headed ogre as I seem to be. And this guy was a nice guy. I figured I'd come out and I could have nailed him right between the eyeballs, but I didn't. I just said, well, I'll have to read the book. You know, I, I, I like to make my own judgments on those things. But I thought about this. this. guy's going on and on and on about this guy who died, went to heaven and came back. And yet everything he said about heaven was contrary to what the Bible said it was. See? And yet, because this guy said, I died, it went back, we all think he really died. You know why we don't know if he died or not? I know he didn't die, but you know why we don't know? Because we don't know the Bible definition of death. Let me tell you something. You're not dead that God says you're dead, but when God says you're dead, you're dead. You ain't coming back. You just ain't coming back. I don't know what to tell you. And I, it's a thing where that's where people get today. I mean, it's crazy. I, I was going to say a flat brain wave, but boy, I know a lot of people who walk around got to have flat brain waves, so I, that's not a thing, sign of death. But I'm telling you, the Bible defines when life begins very clearly, and it defines when life ends and it's death very clearly. But if you don't have a Bible that defines that, you're just off in la-la land, and you don't even know what the definitions are. We talked already in the same way we, we, we saw how people get into something called marriage. Without ever understanding the Bible's definition of marriage. Right. You think marriage is just, you know what, going down and going before a preacher or going before a civil judge and you, you get a piece of paper and you think, well, marriage is something that society does. You know better than that now based on our defining that. But that's where people think. Uh, they get into a married relationship without ever finding out what it really means. Well, we have, we have really cracked some eggshells here in the last couple of weeks with strange concepts. I mean, what does it mean in the Bible? What is the definition of when the Bible says that husbands are supposed to honor, their, honor your wives as a weaker vessel? What does that mean? I never told you yet what it means because I'm not. But what does that really mean? I'll tell you what it is. Don't get in a fight with your wife and then keep your mouth shut driving down the road. And she says, well, why aren't you saying something? Do not read over to her and say, 
because I'm honoring you as the weaker vessel. That will not work. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Some things you just learn by experience, boys, I'm telling you. <laughs> we talked about due benevolence. What does that mean in a marriage? What does that mean? Well, to some of you, like I said last week, it means your monthly alimony check. That's what it means. I mean, we thought we talked about not defrauding each other in a marriage. What does that mean? See, we get into something like marriage, but we never understand the definitions. The concept of marriage and divorce is one of the most misdefined areas in all of the Bible and all of the world. And this is why our country, this is why Bible Christianity is in the mess that we're in today. When Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he writes it with the idea that the reader already has the biblical definitions of marriage and divorce already down. And he, he writes from the aspect that we already understand that. For understanding what he's saying in this chapter is absolutely impossible without the right Bible definitions. For the whole chapter is built on this concept found in the Bible and its definitions. Now, I want to take time this morning before we get into a couple of these principles here. And and I want to talk to you about the defining of what marriage is. I think it's absolutely important. In defining what a marriage in God's eyes is, I think that's absolutely key today. Because we live in a world that has no concept of it. Now, let me just preface my remarks by saying this. But when I get done with this, there will be a tendency for some people who don't have a lot of brain cells still running around in their head that will take the position, as many pious Christians do, that by my stand on divorce and remarriage and what the Bible says about it, not my stand is the Bible stand, that I am somewhat uh, undermining or somewhat brushing away the seriousness of, of a divorce and a remarriage or a divorce. Nothing could be farther from the truth. No, what I am doing is emphasizing not just the issue of divorce. I'm trying to show you how desperately wicked all sin is. I'm not minimizing one. I'm showing you that all sin, trying to get you to see that all sin before a holy God is sin. It isn't just we what the ones we want to pick and then do our own thing with the other ones. It's understanding that God is holy, therefore we are to be holy. And when we are not holy and we sin against a holy God, it is sin. You got to get that. Amen, brother. These white folks just don't get it. I'll tell you what. They do not get it. You know, I'll tell you. I preached at a black church years and years ago, and, I, and a lady come up after me. She said, "You got to have some black in you someplace." <laughs> I don't problem with that. And if you don't believe that, where do you eat my ribs tomorrow? <laughs> now there is two books in the Bible. <laughs> That really defines marriage for you. One in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. And it's from these books that we begin to get the baseline. And we begin to understand that marriage, yes, is a spiritual act that encompasses the three areas we talked about last week in due benevolence, the physically, emotional, and the spiritual. Yet at the same time, in God's eyes, that marriage is a spiritual union, 
It's also a physical union that helps us understand how we should have our own relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say something to you here. Gentlemen, do you know why? And I'm going to, don't, don't, don't get your tail down now like I'm going to beat you up. I'm not. I'm going to get the ladies here in a second. But let me tell you something. I know, I know, I know. I always pick on the guy. Well, it's because you're ugly. I don't know what else to tell you. (laughs) Bottom line is this. Do you know why in the body of Christ, in a perfect sense of Christianity, do you know why that a husband and wife should, in a perfect world, never have any real problems? No, I, I know we all have problems because we don't live in a perfect world. But even in the unperfect world that we live in, if you get this concept down, your marriage will be right in line with where the Bible wants to be. And I'm not saying you won't have moments of relapse, that you won't have issues that come up, but I'm saying there'll never be a time that you don't have the wherewithal to fall back on it. And that's the problem. There's two concepts you want to learn, guys and gals, in marriage. One is to react and one is to respond. And when you have a potential firestorm is right at their door that's going to explode, gentlemen, ladies, you have two roads to go. Your wife has a bad day and says something to you that hits you the wrong way, uh, you can always hit her the right way if that's what you want to do, but that won't work very well. So what you, you have two choices. You can either respond to that or you react to that. Ladies, when your husband says something because he's tired and had a bad day and just been a general jerk, uh, you know, you, you have two choices. You can, be, you can respond to that or you can react to that. Now, reacting is the knee jerk. You know, you say you're ugly, you say you're uglier. Say that's, that's reaction. Responding is taking the biblical principles that absorb what somebody says to you. It's like, it's like a big, being behind a piece, big piece of thick jelly that they shoot bullets into. You're standing right behind it, and the bullet hits it coming at 200,000 feet per second. But by the time it works its way through the jelly, it stops before it hits you. That is what Bible principles should do in your life about anything anybody says or does to you. If you're in the ministry, I've told you before, you better learn not to take it personal because people are going to say things, do things to purposely try to hurt you or try to destroy what God is doing. That's just the way that it is. How do you keep from, you respond. You let the biblical principles slow down whatever somebody says and by the time it gets into your heart, there's nothing there. That's the concept of reacting versus responding. But now let me show you how this thing, in both cases, let me show you how this thing works. Here's how God set it up. Marriage is a spiritual thing that is based on a physical union that shows us something about our relationship with Christ. And by that, if you understand what I'm about to say, this is why you should never really have any problems and you can't work out. Now, guys, if you're saved here this morning, you're God's child. No question about that. But you ever notice in the different ways you study your relationship with Christ in the Bible, you ever notice that you're not only a child of God, but the Bible says you're a son of God, but you're also the bride of Christ? You realize that in your relationship with Jesus Christ, guys, you are the weaker vessel with him just like your wife is to you? Now, guys tell me all the time, well, how do, and I see this all the time, I don't know how to relate to my wife. I don't know how to deal with my wife. I don't know how to deal with those three things. You know, emotional. You know why you don't? It's because you have right in front of you the greatest model that you really not too dialed into. 
If you're dialed into your personal relationship with Jesus Christ and you see yourself as the bride, the weaker vessel, and him as the bridegroom, the one that's going to make you strong and bears all your needs and meets your due benevolence and, and honors you as the weaker vessel, when you understand all of those things that he does to you as the weaker vessel, then you have a good model to look at your own relationship with God in Christ and then transfer those things right to your wife. Now, that is the key to honoring her as the weaker vessel. Oh, I just gave it to you, didn't I? See? Now, wives, study yourself through the Bible. Yeah, you're a child of God. Yeah, you're the bride of Christ, but you're also a son of God. See that thing? And as being a son of God, if you look at it and study that relationship, then you have an understanding of how your husband's relationship should be with Christ. You should understand his, his needs just as he understands your needs. And through your own individual relationship with Jesus Christ, if that's working for you, if it's really doing what it's supposed to do, in a perfect world, there'll be no issues that cannot be resolved. You know why I won't resolve any issues between me and God? Because it's certainly not on God's problem. It's my problem. I don't want to. And when you get into the perfect world and the imperfect world, when you get into the imperfect world, up comes the I don't want to's. And that's where it falls. But in its purest form, if you really love God and have the relationship with God that you need to have, and this is all I'm about, I know I can't make you perfect. That'll happen when you get your glorified body. But I can, through the Word of God, make you better than you are. But some of you don't want to. See where it comes in? And the way that you understand your marriage and this due benevolence and honoring her as the weaker vessel is, guys, look at yourself between you as the weaker vessel and God. Does God treat you like you treat her? Does he throw you under the bus? Does he tell you how this or that? Does he cuss you out? Does he scream at you? He ought to. But he doesn't. You see, the problem, it goes right back to what I said, doesn't it? The problem is misdefinitions and not understanding how we, the relationship. That's why I tell you all the time, your marriage relationship will only be as strong as your individual relationship with Jesus Christ and you understanding all of these things. And so then you understand the concept. God doesn't react. Do you ever notice that? There isn't one thing God does that he doesn't think about before he does. I mean, it's, that's where the word long suffering comes from. Is there anybody here that sh should not have been killed last week? Well, the very fact that you and I should have been killed and have not been killed shows you that God doesn't act or react. He responds. Going to kill you tomorrow. <laughs> Going to kill you later. I saw this t-shirt out there. One of these shows I go to, I almost bought. It had this big clown face on it, and it was distorted. It was a clown, but it was one of those terror, horror movie clowns. And it says, I like you, so I'll kill you last. <laughs> God doesn't react. He responds to us. And when God does react, it's after, come let us reason together, saith the Lord. How many times did God allow us to go to a church or a Bible study to hear some idiot get up there and take the word of God and clean our clocks 
when God all the time should be waiting for us around the corner of I-435 with a big old semi stalled in the road and put us up in the pearly gates. He doesn't. He doesn't at all. Now, let's talk about the concept of marriage. It's defined from the Bible what a marriage is. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the whole Bible is built around two events. Do you know that? The main event is the second coming of Christ. That's the theme of the Bible. But you know what shares that main event? Because there's two major events in your Bible, and your Bible is built all around these two. The first one is the Lord's coming back. You know what the second one is? The second one is the marriage of his son. That Bible's built around a marriage. Now, you know, most people, this is, most people don't even understand. They don't even know how to put it together. You get over in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, and chapter 3, verse 15, and it talks about the family of God. They don't even have a clue what that means. They just think, well, that all means we're all in the family of God. Well, baby, obviously we're all in the family of God, but there's a little more to it than that. Because the concept of marriage that you and I engage in wasn't set up by man concept of let's set it up and make it happen. The concept of marriage that you and I enjoy and understand is based on that big marriage that someday's coming in the Bible. And it's the marriage of Christ and uh, to, marriage of Christ being married to his bride, the church. And all through the Bible, you'll find it in Matthew chapter 25. You'll find it in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 8. You'll find it in Matthew chapter 22. You find it all through those things that there is a wedding and God is inviting people to come to the wedding. In Matthew chapter 25, we're smack dab in the middle of tribulation period. He's sending out the 144,000 Gentiles, the uh, Jews, the priests to the Gentiles. And what is he preaching? He's preaching there's going to be a wedding in the air in the sweet, sweet by and by. You don't want to miss it. He says in Matthew chapter 25 with a great parable on the ten virgins, five were wise and five foolish. He comes down and he says, he comes down and five got it, five didn't get it. And the five that got it, they went with him to where? To the marriage. There's a marriage coming. And the fact that God's people don't know that today, the fact that preachers aren't preaching that today, it's a disgrace. There's a wedding coming, and that wedding is the wedding of God's son to his bride. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're saved this morning, you and I make up that bride. And the rest of your Bible from before the law, during the law, into the tribulation period, into the, and into the millennium, are people being invited to come to that wedding. They're the guests. Now, here's where we get fouled up. Now, in the Bible, there are no wedding ceremonies. In the Bible, there's no vows. There's no I do's, I wills, I won'ts. There's no rings. We have that today because someplace along the line. Oh, I know, and I've heard this all the time. Well, Bob, in John chapter 2, Jesus, he, he went. I've even had people, it talks about in John chapter 2, there was a wedding in Canaan. I've even had some people try to say that Jesus performed that ceremony. I've had them take that passage and, and they try to make that passage a, a wedding ceremony and try to justify what they do today. And the poor, deluded idiots don't even have a clue, can't even read the passage. That marriage there in Cana, 
Do you ever notice that wedding took place on the third day? You know what the third day represents in your Bible? The third day represents the days Jesus comes back and we go to be with him. And that marriage in John 2 is a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's why when the guy drank the grape juice that Jesus turned into it, the guy said, man, I've never tasted anything like this before. That's because you got a taste of what's coming down the line. That's what that is. Don't even know that. There's no wedding ceremonies in the Bible. There's no vows. There's no rings. There's no I wills. And we have that today because somebody down the line uh, wanted to put a Bible context to weddings. I think it's a good thing. I'm not fighting it. I think you just not understand it. When you come through the Bible and you see this family of God coming from the Old Testament up to the New Testament, you're going to find all the attendance to the wedding. You know what a wedding is. Whoever made the wedding concept based it on the Bible of what they understood about this family of God. So you got a bride. That's the church. You got a bridegroom. The bride's always in white. That symbolizes the purity of her being a virgin because the Bible says the church is a virgin. She's always got a veil. Now, she doesn't wear a veil because she just robbed a bank and hadn't had time to take it off. She wears a veil because she's a type of the church and the Bible says the church is the what? Thank you very much. So she wears a veil. She wears that veil all the way down. And then, you know, the, the, in most traditional weddings, the wedding party, you have, a, you, have a, you have a bridegroom. That's Christ. You have the church. That's the, a bride. And then you have the friend of the bridegroom. That fits into the Bible to that crowd around John the Baptist. John the Baptist is called the friend of the bridegroom. He's the best man. And you have all these different things. You have your wedding attendants. You'll find those in the book of Psalms. You'll find them in the book of Psalms where the wedding is there and all the attendants are there too. It's not your wedding, wasn't my wedding, but it's the wedding that's coming that our weddings are a picture of. On the, traditionally on the day of the wedding, the bride's not supposed to see the groom. Now, I know a lot of this stuff doesn't hold anymore, but it was a time when it was real special stuff. She said, oh, I can't let him see me. You know why? Because the first time he's supposed to see her is when the music starts, everybody stands up, all the attendants are there. And what happens? The bride in white with a veil on her face comes to the bridegroom. Picture the rapture. And that's why traditionally they roll down the white thing. They have a little kids coming down throwing flowers. They represent demons in the Bible. They... <laughs> Because they always screw up the wedding. They'll get right in the middle and they'll say, hey, I ain't going any farther. I'm only five years old. I don't listen to my parents than anything. Why should I listen to that guy who told me to walk down the aisle? See, I mean, that's what they do. Devil gets in everything. <laughs> oh, that's a picture. But the Bible tells us that marriage in God's sight is a flesh thing. It's flesh joining flesh. It's the sexual union between two people in Christ that understand the concept. Genesis chapter 24, verse 67 says, And Isaac brought Rebekah into his mother's tent, uh, Sarah's tent, and took Rebekah, and what? She became his wife. There's no ceremony there. Now, and let me clear this up since we're here because this always comes up to it. Let me clear up the area of, of what we find today in many cases, not so much anymore, is the idea of common law marriages. 
And that's where people just live together without any formal certification or no license or no ceremony. They decide, well, you know, and, and many saved people, uh, they, they think they're getting married in the pure biblical sense. And yet you need to understand that in the Bible for the New Testament, God does not recognize common law marriages. Romans chapter 13 makes it clear that you have to follow the rule of law of civil government. They're ordained of God. That's the second institution that he set up. And there's two issues with that. The first issue is civil government. You're not recognized as legally married. And I know that the government, you get a piece of paper, doesn't make you married, but the piece of paper is the basically legal formality that says that you are married. And so you get people that say, well, we just want to live together in the purest sense of the Bible. We don't want to go through all of that. Well, you know what? The second aspect is your testimony. Unsafe people don't see that. Unsafe people don't see that. You get two people who are saved and say, we're just going to live together in common law marriage. And they go, your unsafe friends don't see it that way. They see you're just shacking up like everybody else in the world. That's, right. that's what they see. You may understand it, but they don't understand it. And that's why the Bible says, what? Abstain from all what? Appearances of evil. That's why the Bible says, let not your good be evil spoken of. You got a testimony. I've had people that thought, well, I can drink a beer whenever I want, you know, and they're at a restaurant someplace and, they, and they're drinking a beer and a friend walks up, it's a Christian and doesn't know that, and then they, work, they worry for the next 15 minutes asking their apology and saying, I'm sorry. Well, if you're nothing wrong with it, what are you sorry about? People are strange. Are you sure stupidity is not a spiritual gift? We left that about four weeks ago. <laughs> you see, and it's a clear case. Legally, it opens you up to all kinds of issues because most states don't recognize it. So there you can't get any benefits. You can't do this. You can't do that. Biblically, it just throws you right into the cesspool of the world. People don't make the distinction. They don't. You know, people don't know you're a Christian because you say you're a Christian. This is another great mess we're in. People don't believe you're a Christian because they, you say they're a Christian. People believe you're a Christian because you do what the Bible says and you live like a Christian. Remember the theme of this book? Why call ye me what? Lord, Lord, and not what? Do the things that I say. You got to get past this. This idea that I'm a Christian, I can live like hell because I'm a Christian. The world don't see it that way. You're not a Christian because you say you're a Christian. You're a Christian because you do what a Christian does, and a Christian is to separate himself from the world. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. But that's where it is. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just telling you. And, and, and it's one of those things where you, you know, you, 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 you got a problem with it when you, when you don't put it this way. And in the Bible, marriage is never a piece of paper from a courthouse, from the civil government. It, it never is in God's sight. Marriage is when the flesh joins flesh. Now, I'll show you this. Take your Bible. Turn over to Matthew chapter 19. And while um, you're turning there, I might as well tell you this. So you get this down. God does not recognize the marriage of two unsaved people. I, I don't know where we got this concept. I don't know where we got the concept that God would, I mean, can you get to heaven without being saved? Not to my knowledge, you can't. Well, if marriage is a picture of the body of Christ and a relationship and it's something that God set up and ordained for his church, if you're not members of the church, the body, if you're not saved, what good is marriage? 
An unsaved, God does not recognize the marriage of unsaved people. They're not his children. They're of their father the devil and the lust of their fathers they will do. That's why they do. That's why a Christian shouldn't do what the world does. But they do. Now look at this verse. This is a great verse. This is my favorite verse in the Bible today. <clears throat> now I told you a couple of weeks ago the context of Matthew chapter 19 verses 1 through 9 uh, was the Pharisees coming to him and attempting him uh, on the issue of divorce. Remember that? And I showed you how that this is where <clears throat> a lot of most Baptist churches go to prove the, and it has nothing to do with it. They're not coming to him asking him for truth. They're coming to him to try to get him to make a mistake and trying to trick him. And all up through chapter uh, one, uh, 19 through 1 through 9, that goes back and forth. Well, then his disciples get confused. And because Jesus is basically giving them an impression that a man, if this is true, that a man should never get married. And so that picks it up in verse 10. His disciples say unto him, if the case of the man be so with his wife, the one we just talked about, is it good not to marry? In other words, maybe it's better off if man don't marry. But he said unto them, he said the same thing that Paul says, all men cannot receive this saying. He said, not everybody can stay unmarried. Now, I just told you that marriage is not a piece of paper. I just told you that marriage is the sexual connection between the two, a flesh joining flesh. Now, let me prove it to you. This is the verse. This is your definitive verse right here. You won't miss it. You can read English, sixth grade English, and got half your brain cells left. You're in good shape. Look at verse 11. But he said unto them, all men cannot receive this saying, save they whom it is given. All right. Now, remember now, the context is, should a man not marry? That's the context. Don't lose sight of that. Here's his answer. For there are some eunuchs, okay? Then his answer, should a man not marry, is a, is a form of a, of a eunuch, which obviously what he's going to tell you here, a eunuch cannot get married. Because the question was, is it good that a man should marry? Maybe we shouldn't get married. And he said, not everybody can accept that, but a eunuch, and then he gives you three kinds of eunuchs. And a eunuch cannot get married. From the context, for there are some eunuchs which were born from their mother's womb. There are some that are eunuchs which were made by eunuchs of men. And there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Now that's a great verse. It's a definitive verse. It's a revealing verse. Now the issue in verse 10 here is the fact, again, just so you get it, uh, what about this thing married? Maybe a guy shouldn't get married. And he says not everybody can, ex- can accept that. But a eunuch can. And then he gives you three kinds of eunuch. That would be born that way. That's born with the inability to have sex. Made that way by men. That'd be castration or mutilation. Made themselves that way for the kingdom of God's sake. They abstain from sex. Now, he just told you that it's impossible for a eunuch to get married. That's the example. Yet any eunuch on this planet, anytime, place, anywhere, can go through a marriage ceremony, can take a vow, and he can take rings. But what he can't do is enter into a sexual union. You know why? Because in the Bible, in God's eyes, that's what marriage is. You see the obvious issue that brings up for the pious brethren that, that, that don't uh, treat divorce like any other sin? And again, I'm not minimizing divorce. I'm trying to uplift and show you how bad sin is, but to a holy God, divorce is just another one. It's like any other sin you confess and put under the blood and move on and pick up your life after God. Now look at this. Oh, this will kill you. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. What do you do with this? It only gets worse from here in. 
Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are members of Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, What know ye not your body, temple of the Holy Ghost? Know ye not that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not? Now, I told you last week, or I think it was Thursday night, there's phrases in the Bible you ought to study. I told you, I think the other night, every time the Bible says, take heed, you ought to go through a concordance and find all of those and separate them out. You're going to get a great study of things that we need to take heed of. One is, he that hath ears, let him hear. That's a great one. And one of them I told you already is there's seven things in the Bible that Bible in the New Testament says we're not to be ignorant of. But here's another one, and this is a great one too. What? Know ye not? That's a good one. Because most of the things we don't know is what he's saying here. What? Know ye not? He did in verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. Here it comes. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. Now, what do you do with that? Now, he gives you some verse, good verse, good advice in verse 18. Flee fornication. Amen. That's good advice. <laughs> Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Why? Because a child of God then breaks the relationship he has with Christ and he joins that relationship to the physical attraction that he put it to, whether it be his girlfriend, whether it be some hooker, whatever it is. But when you do it, you have joined your flesh from God to that. Now, this is the result of a society that dumps the Bible, dumps the principles, lives like hell, does what they want to do, justifies it with God. I, every time I think of this, I think of David's sin with Bathsheba. And I think how you go through there, you ever notice how David had three or four plans to cover his bases? He's just like you and me. He had three or four plans, plans to cover it. Finally, the best plan work was when he couldn't get Uriah to go home and be with his wife sexually so they could blame the baby on that. Finally, when there was no other way, he gave Joab, gave a letter to a runner to Joab to put him in the forefront. David had him killed. So, and it's a great, at the end of this chapter, I forget what chapter, it's a great thing, oh, and I love when he says this. He, David, he's sitting up there in his palace, got word back, Uriah died. He thinks he's got all the bases covered. He thinks that nobody knows about it. He thinks he's got the thing all laid out and worked out, all covered up and all smooched up, and boy, how smart he is. And then the last verse in that chapter says, but the thing displeased the Lord. Yeah. We think because God doesn't come down and whack us right now, we got away with it. And again, I'm not preaching this to make any fitty feel bad. I'm telling you, where you make a mess out of life, you get it right with God. You put it under the blood. That's the end of it. And you move on with a fresh start. 
But I'm telling you, but we live in a Christianity that cares so little about keeping your body pure for God. The lack of knowledge on biblical aspect of marriage. What? Know ye not that when you have a sexual encounter in an out-of-fellowship state, you're married to that person now in the eyes of God? Hey, I've all my ministry. I've known young men at just proud churches for young ladies. Their whole life they went through from church to church to place, finding out the hot young girls, picking them up, being nice to them, telling them what a great Christian they are, giving them some phony example, and then fornicating with them. There was silence in heaven but the space of a half an hour. Now, do you see why the pious brethren, like we talked about earlier, have such a tough time with the Bible, why they want to stay away from this? You see why they like to hang out back there in Matthew chapter 19 and Matthew chapter 5 and make up, you know, when you get a divorce and then dump on you the penalty that you have to stay single the rest of your life and when you do get married and you live in adultery the rest of your life. You, know why they, you see why they like to do that? I'll tell you why. Because if the truth were known, one of those pious pastors, teachers, and deacons have been married and divorced multiple times in their lifetime. I'll take it one step forward. We're like a 600-pound man on ice. We're going to go through here in just a minute. (laughs) Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath already committed adultery in her. You don't even have to have the act. You can divorce your wife today. When you take, you know what, you know what, you know what it is, don't you? Marriage is flesh joining flesh. Now when you join that person to that flesh, and then you take it away from that flesh, this is why we're in the mess we're in. It's hard attitude. And you know, you know how wicked our heart is. Now, this is the careless lifestyle without any principles that God's people have today that come up with all the little plans. Everything except living a holy, godly life. The Bible takes the position clear and plainly every relationship you had after you saved is a marriage. Tough, huh? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15 makes that clear. Let's say it again. Know ye not that your bodies are members of Christ? So God gives the relationship of a biblical marriage so you two can have that in Christ, the engagement and the marriage. Shall I take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. And when you do, he that is joined to a harlot is one flesh. I don't know what else to tell you. So a marriage then is flesh joining flesh. Now the definition of divorce from the Bible, let's get this one. Now the definition of divorce from the Bible, this is important because again, this whole chapter is built on these two Bible concepts. If a marriage is flesh joining flesh based on the hard attitude, good or bad, then a Bible, biblical divorce is when flesh leaves the flesh based on the attitude of heart. Not not when you get your divorce papers. Not when it's in God's mind, it's the attitude of heart. Marriage in God's sight is never a piece of paper. It's never, in a divorce in God's sight is never a decree from a judge. 
That may end it legally. That may give you the ability to move on or do whatever you got to do legally. But it is a divorce when a man and a woman simply say in their heart, I don't love you anymore. I love somebody else or I love something else. You got the wrong attitude, it's there. That's, that's why the Bible says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. That's why the Bible says, set your affections on things above. That's why the Bible says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, be ye holy for I am holy. It's like leaving a church. People leave churches all the time. But you always watch the pattern. You can see the pattern. We talked about it Thursday night. Guy says, well, I'm leaving the church. It's June. Well, I'm going to leave the church. He's gone. Somebody says, did so-and-so leave the church? Yeah. Did he leave last week? No. When did he leave? Oh, he lost a year ago. Well, I saw him here through the last year. He just left this week. No, he left last year. No, no, he just left this week. No, his body left this week. His attitude of heart went left a year ago. It just took a year for the body to catch up to where his heart already was. You can understand that, can't you? That's just the way it goes. Well, it's the same way here. It's the exact same way. That Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, that our hearts are deceitful, desperate, deceitful, desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? It's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, that we're cast down imaginations and everything that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. And we wouldn't get into these little concepts. That destroys Christianity. And then walk around thinking how good we were a Christian on Sunday morning when you're fornicating on Saturday night. Now, the model for divorce in the Bible is found in the Old Testament with God and Israel. Israel called God's wife all through the Old Testament. Now, watch this. She commits adultery against him by going after other nations and other gods. What was the first commandment of the ten? Thou shalt have no other God before me. See? Fact tied in there that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, and all thy soul. Those two are snapped right there together. So based on Israel's adultery and fornication against God, now let me explain this. Most people don't know the difference between fornication and adultery. Preachers don't have a clue today because they don't know the Bible. I'm going to give you the two definitive verses on it. You already got them, really. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 tells you that fornication always has to deal with your body, the physical part of it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28 tells you that adultery always has to do with your heart. You see, they're connected, but they're not the same. There's two aspects. It's like transgress and trespass. You transgress against God, but you trespass against man. You fornicate with your physical body, but your heart goes along with it. You commit adultery with the one that you should have that one heart with. That's the way it works. So you see that based on Israel. I mean, uh, and this is what it is. And and Look at this. God took Israel as his wife. You want to get these down. You'll find this in Jeremiah chapter 1 uh, through 14 and Isaiah chapter 54 verse 1. God looked at all the other nations, chose Israel and said, She's going to be my wife. Took her as his wife. She takes care of him, or he takes care of her, gives her due benevolence, does everything. Honors her as the weaker vessel, wipes out her enemies. All the models there, guys. What did she do? She committed adultery in her heart with other gods. 
And then she committed fornication with the habit of those nations. You find that in Numbers chapter 25. You find the spiritual adultery in Ezekiel 16, 33, the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verse 16, and chapter 2, verse 10. So based on that, what does God do? Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8 says, I put her away. I gave her a bill of divorcement. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1 says, Thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, Israel, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, your iniquities, there it is, have, have ye sold uh, your, yourselves, and by your transgressions is your mother uh, put away. Now see that thing? He says your iniquities and your transgressions. Now you know what you got? God's divorced. You see, when you take the position of these idiotic, stupid, ridiculous preachers who know nothing about the Bible, nothing about the family of God, the concept of God in Israel and the bride in the church, and they go out this thing taking Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19 and beating everybody over the head, and, and now what do you got to do? God, as we stand here today, is divorced from the nation of Israel. What should we let him do? See, this is what happens to a society that loses its Bible. You lose your Bible on Monday. You lose your morality on Tuesday. You lose your mind on Wednesday. God joined himself to Israel, not spiritually, but literally through a piece of ground, Jerusalem. And you go to Isaiah chapter 62, verse 4, you'll find there that the Bible says that, uh, that, that God, uh, is, God and Israel are married to the land. You know why? Here comes another kicker. Because in the Old Testament, in the literal, physical kingdom of heaven, God joined himself not spiritually to Israel, but physically to Israel through the land, Jerusalem, the land of Palestine. In the New Testament, God joined his son spiritually to a body in the kingdom of God, but also through a city, New Jerusalem, which is the abode of the church. You see, in the Old Testament, it's a physical thing. In the Old Testament, it's a physical marriage based on a physical kingdom, based on a physical uh, piece of ground. In the New Testament, it's a spiritual concept based on a spiritual relationship, based on a spiritual New Jerusalem. Can't you get that? model of divorce and marriage will always be based on our attitude of heart toward God and his word and then the relationship. You know, God wants you to find a wife or a husband that together you can, this goes into the concept. That's why marriage should only be in the church. That's why marriage should only be laid out within the church because it's through this body that you're going to come and two become one. And I told you last week that the aspect of the two becoming one in God's sight, but it takes two to make a marriage. So that second person of that marriage after the two become ones becomes the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then together you become a help meet to each other to do whatever God has called you to do together. God will bring people into your world and, and together will put you together through the word of God into that mindset that you will get together after you're married in that spiritual concept. You will begin to do what God wants you to do together. He's got a plan for you. That's the whole concept of marriage. And that's why when we get to the, get to the judgment seat of Christ and get through that and get to the marriage of the lamb, it'll be the final consummation. 
that when eternity starts, now we are going to do within this body exactly what God had planned for us to do. This is all a test tube down here. We think life means so much that this is all there is. This is nothing compared to what's coming. All right. We get focused on the now and we forget what's coming. I preached a number of years ago to prove my point. I was up in New York. And I'm sitting on the platform and <clears throat> pastor leans over. <clears throat> and we had talked the night before <clears throat> about a couple <clears throat> that had gotten divorced in their church. Very traumatic, very bad, just a bad mess, just terrible. And it was a very messy thing. And he was asking me some things, and we were trying to help him a little bit, you know, and he was talking. So that Sunday morning, <clears throat> I'm going to preach. And we're sitting there, and he leans over to me, and he says, we've got a little presentation here. It, 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 won't, it won't take us long, he says, and you'll be up. And I said, it's fine. So we had this dear, sweet couple come up, and they recognized them for being married for 60 years together. And this was your typical nice couple. They probably got saved when they were young, <clears throat> came to church all their life, <clears throat> got married, stayed together, did everything they were supposed to do, you know, as far as marriage, husband, wife, had kids, raised their kids, came to church all their life, tied, just nice people. But when I talked to him later without him knowing what I was asking, they were just your typical normal Christians who basically went to church all their life and never did anything for God. And I sat there that morning and I watched, based on what we talked about last night, based on this nice, sweet, gray-haired couple, giving her her roses and him, whatever he gave him, shotgun, I think, whatever it was, <clears throat> gave him these things and everybody standing up and clotting and glad they were married for 60 years. And I thought to myself, really, really, let me ask you a question. What's the difference? What difference does it make if this couple last night got blowed up and got divorced and killed each other and shot themselves to pieces and this couple over here stayed married for 60 years if neither one of them fulfilled what God called them to do? What difference does it make? You think because you stay married for 75 years, that's a good marriage? I mean, a good marriage is what did you do with everything God gave you? Do you understand why God put the marriage together in the first place? That's the key. And thinking you can have some kind of marriage outside of that that's going to be meaningful, not in this world. The devil is going to throw you under the bus and back up and run over you three or four times. Now, with all this in mind, let's look at chapter 7, verse 10 here very quickly. I want to get at least one or two of these rules in today. Oh, and this is all foundational stuff. You, this stuff that I'm about to say wouldn't make any sense to you at all if I didn't tell you what I just told you. This is stuff you got to know. Now, he says in verse 10, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. All right, rule number three in our coming down through. he got a lot of concepts, but here's rule number three. The rule number three is, is a saved woman in a relationship, when you have problems, she's never to depart. The saved person, it says, under the, and, and the married I command, not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. Now, that's the concept. The wife is not to depart from her husband. Now, I'm going to get into that in a minute. Now, this verse is very, uh, very interesting for, when I look at this thing, <clears throat> notice he tells the wife. He says, and to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. Notice he doesn't say anything about the husband departing from the wife. He just tells the wife not to depart from the husband. I think that's very instructive. 
You know why that is? The command is to the weaker vessel, the woman. You know why that is? Because God understands that she's the most fragile one in the relationship. <clears throat> she's the one that's going to have the fragile issues depending on the husband. But that's, uh, that there's not one word to the husband uh, told not to leave. You know why? Because he's the type of Christ. And Christ would never leave his bride. All right. I may walk out on Christ a thousand times. I'm the weaker vessel. He will never walk out on me. If you are Christ in a relationship... That's why you're not told to leave. Christ would never leave. And in a relationship, you and I are to be Christ. See how that thing works? I'm telling you, you want the meat. When you get into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it'll fillet you. I as a bride, the weaker vessel, I may leave Christ a thousand times, but Christ, my husband, will never leave me. He will never forsake me. He will never walk away from my relationship with him. But I, as the weaker vessel, will walk away from my relationship with him. So, you know what? Preachers every Sunday, Holy Spirit of God every chance it can. Everybody, what they do, will always tell me, the weaker vessel, do what's right. That's what he's saying. That's why there's no instruction to the husband. He takes for granted that the husband is going to do what the Bible says. You're Christ in a relationship, Ephesians chapter 5. And Christ would never desert his bride. He'd never depart from his body. See, this is the instructions given to the New Testament church. And this is why we have the complete and total breakdown of the New Testament guideline for us as God's people in his body. Marriage is built on these biblical principles, not in complicated. As I already said, get four or five definitions of good Bible principles, put them into your life, and it'll work for you. <clears throat> Rule number four. Now, <clears throat> he just said the wife is not to depart from her husband. Then he does a strange thing. He reverses what he just said. Verse 11 says, but if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. Now, he reverses it. He just said, let her not depart, and then he says, but if she does depart. Now, in the new te- this, is not, this is the new stuff in the New Testament. And what you have here is the New Testament concept of what we call a New Testament biblical separation. Sometimes, sometimes the situation gets so volatile, sometimes the situation gets so bad because of the law of sowing and reaping, compounding effect, years and years and years of neglect, Years and years and years of nobody fulfilling their role. Hey, I've been in situations when you can't be in the same room without. I had one couple years ago that was so bad that every time they come and see me, one time I'd have thought I'd just play a joke on them. I put a striped referee shirt on with a whistle. <laughs> they got my point. They couldn't talk about anything. Everything just went volatile. Nobody could. It went too far. It got too bad. And there are some circumstances and some situations where you let it go too long, it gets too volatile. The only thing, the wife, she is the fragile vessel. And sometimes I've had him, heard him, sat him say in some circumstances, look, I can't stay in this thing any longer and, and, and not hate him and not want anything ever to do with him again. Sometimes they have to come to the point where you have to have a biblical separation. But that needs to be operated under the guise of a New Testament local church. You don't just do that on your own. 
You need to come under the watch care of a church and say, look, this is my situation. This is where I'm at. I'm struggling with this. I'm not separating from him to get a divorce. I'm separating him to go to neutral corners so I can get some space where we can kind of talk about this or see what this is. Maybe it won't work out. Maybe too much damage is done. I used to work at the Hoover Company in North Canton, Ohio. <clears throat> we made washing machines, vacuum cleaners, mostly washing machines. And uh, so if you got a Hoover washing machine and it's an old one, it's probably something I had to do with. It's probably why it doesn't work very well. <clears throat> I used to take parts to the line. And I worked in this section that was a warehouse that had steel shelving going up 30, 40 feet in the air. Had to put a fork truck all the way up on those high skids to pick them up and bring them up. Thousands and thousands of parts. Every part you could imagine. And I used to get so frustrated with people screaming for parts and screaming for this. And I hated this warehouse. And one time I played with this idea. I was sitting way back in the warehouse where it has on break. And I mean, the warehouse was three times longer than this building. It was shelves up with parts everywhere. <clears throat> and I walked down there and I thought to myself, man, you know what I'd like to do just to get even with this place? I'd like to just stop ripping stuff off the shelves and knocking barrels of this over and knocking this over and pushing this down and throwing this down and just, whoa, just say, yeah, you want these? Oh, go get them and throw this stuff down there and throw these over here, throw these over here and blah, 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 throw them over here and run that. And when I already got down to the end, I was sitting back, back there and I just thought to myself, you know, you know what? The only way out is back the way I came in. And the only way out of that corridor after I made the big mess that I had made was to pick up the pieces myself so I could get out of the mess that I made. Amen. And it was a very long corridor. All right. All right. And sometimes that's all you can do is pick up the pieces, but they got to be picked up. Somebody has to pick them up. Sometimes getting away from the situation is so volatile that any minute contact erupts into a major battle. Sometimes there's physical abuse. We don't have any cases of physical abuse in our church because I don't, I mean, that I know of anyhow, but I, mean, but I just tell you this, lady, if you're having a situation where your husband beats you, put him in jail. Put him in jail. Shoot him first and then put him in jail. <laughs> put him in jail. I don't want to tell you. No husband should ever hit his wife. You got a wife, you want to hit your wife, you know what, you got some serious issues. I mean, get your dog that'll bite her or something else to get away from her, but don't, you know, a man who beats his wife and hits his wife because he's go angry needs to go to jail. Amen. I don't want to tell you. Don't come to me counseling because I'll just tell you. Did you call the police? Oh, get out of here. I don't want to talk to you. I'll beat you up. Get out of here. <laughs> That's the only lesson he'll learn. But they don't do it. You know why? Because your desires to the weaker. And women like that, when they get into those situations, even though it's a rough thing and it's a bad thing, they take some kind of security in that. Put his butt in jail. Put him in jail. Uh, put him in jail. Big jail, long jail, no short jail, small broom. No bathroom privileges. Case of beer. I'm telling you. But sometimes it gets that way. Women's got to get out. Sometimes there's, there's drugs or alcohol. And a guy comes home staggering drunk, kids involved. Uh, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna just let that go on forever? I'm not, you know, but the Bible says you don't separate to divorce him. You separate to get out of the situation to get the protection that you need. That's something you get done. Next week, I'm going to show you when that happens, how the church then operates. Sometimes the church has to become a mediator. Sometimes somebody has to get in the middle of it. You don't separate to get the divorce. Now, I've known people that did separate to get the divorce, but that's because it was too late. I'm not passing judgment on however you've done whatever you've done. Don't misunderstand me. 
My philosophy is and always will be, help you where you're at. But the separation has to be done by the body. You see, the wife can biblically separate from the, from the husband to be reconciled, but the husband can never separate from the wife. goes back to the thing. You and I are Christ. We don't separate. Christ don't separate himself from the body. Does Christ get out of fellowship with me sometime? Yeah. Does that mean he, I'm not part of his body? Absolutely not. And you, can't, you just can't take that concept anywhere. You see, the Lord knows better than, than I do what we've talked about today. In a perfect world, there's no reason for divorce within the body of Christ. I know that. Everything I'm giving you, I'm not giving you to say, you should have done it this way, stupid. I'm not doing that. I'm doing it so you can learn, so when you get into these scenarios with somebody at work, that you know how and understand the basis of what you're dealing with. And I really want you to understand this concept about keeping your body holy because we live in a world that just throws that out the window today and then just smiles like, boy, me and God are just fine. In a perfect world, there's no reason for divorce within the body of Christ, but we don't live in a perfect world, and divorce happens. So the Lord, through the church, makes a provision for the person, no matter no matter how bad the situation begins. He makes a way to do what's right, even if the marriage cannot be solved or saved. And it doesn't matter. There are always something you can do in any circumstances. I don't care how bad it is. I've never met a circumstance that was so bad that there wasn't something that the person couldn't do. The problem is when you get so far into it, you don't want to do it. Or it's too late when you want to do it. But that's where you got to take it. The bottom line is, you know, God will take you where you're at. Your marriage will together will only be as strong as your individual relationship with Christ. And that's, you know, that's the example you have all the way through here. That Christ, uh, she's the weaker vessel and Christ, he's the church. You know, in, in, and I'm asked all the time, you know, women come in and they have problems in their marriage and they have issues and a guy doesn't seemingly want to do what's right. And these are real things that people are faced with. And they'll come in and they'll say, you know, you know, I feel like getting out of this thing. I feel like there's no hope in it. I feel like there's this, there's that, but I don't know what to do. And I, I never tell people what to do. That's not my job. My job is not to tell people what to do. My job is to show you what your options are in the Bible. I can't tell you what to do because I don't have to live through what you decide to do. You've got to do it. And I don't give that kind of advice in dealing with people. I'll show you what the biblical principles say. I'll show you the cause and effect of which way you go. I'll show you what your options are, what are your good options, what are your bad options, and the end result of all of them. But that's where my job ends. But I will tell people this. Look, you may be in the worst situation. You may not want to get out. You may want to get out wherever you find yourself. The bottom line is this. I commend you the fact that you want to do what's right. But I got to tell you this. Unless your husband decides to get what he needs to get, to be what he needs to be, to do what he needs to do. And he gets into that book and he changes who he is to be what God wants him to be. You can have all the tears and all the desires and all the hopes in all the world, but it will never change the situation you're in because the woman does not have the power to change the situation. Just like I can't change what God's doing and what Christ's doing, the woman, the weaker vessel, can't change the man. God didn't set it up that way. You can beg him, you can cry, you can weep, you can ask him, you can write him little notes in his lunchbox, you can put things in his apple, you can put razor blades, you can put all kinds of things in there, you can do whatever you want to do, but at the end of the day, you cannot make Christ do what's right. You should do what's right because you're Christ. 
Well, we'll hold up there. Two more principles to put down. Hope I didn't ruin your lunch. <laughs> Let me say this in closing as we pray. And I say it again. Every head bowed and every eye closed. This message was designed in no way to pass judgment on anybody. There's not a time in my world that I'm not dealing with somebody and something that I'm preaching about. And that's never my intent. My intent is to tell you, as I've said all through this, that no matter what state you're in, I don't care. I'm here to help you. If we can fix it, then we'll fix it. If we can't fix it, then we'll do what we got to do. I, I can't be responsible for what shape it's in. I can only be responsible for what you bring me, how fixable it is. But no matter what shape it's in, I say again, there is always something you can do. There's always something you can do, no matter what situation you're in. And most of you are doing very well and doing whatever you can do. But let me ask you this. Maybe you're here this morning. You heard what I said. It was a tough message. But there's some tough issues. I hope that if you've got problems in your life or problems in your personal life or problems in your marriage, this, marriage, this message was designed to show you the light at the end of the tunnel. If you're here today and you're a husband, and, you know, I've seen many, many couples come in that were lost and got saved, and, boy, I mean, their husbands and wives picked up the concept really, really quick, and, 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 boy, just turned that thing around. It can happen. I've seen people come in with all kinds of problems. It doesn't matter. Christ makes the difference. And the Word of God and its principles are the key to everything in your life. Now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, let me ask this question. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know for sure if you died right now or you go to heaven. Maybe that's the whole problem. You've never really trusted Christ as your own personal Savior. I want you to know that God will save you this morning. If you're a husband and wife or you're somebody here by yourself, and I'll tell you, right now, God will take what, what the tragedy of your life, with all of its broken pieces, with all of its heartache, and God will begin the process to put that thing back together to make your life work. Don't be like the couple that that Saturday night the pastor told me their life was a mess. Don't be like the couple that Sunday morning that stood up there and were married for 60 years, but neither one of them did a thing for God and for us fulfilling. God has something he wants you to do. That's why he wants to save you. And that's why he wants you after you are saved to do those things that he wants you to do. Now, where our heads are bowed and no one's looking around. Maybe you're a young man here today or a young lady. Maybe you're a husband and wife. I don't know. Maybe you're an older couple. I don't know. But you know deep down in your heart you're not saved today. And you know right now if you died, you don't know for sure you'd go to heaven. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, would you let me pray for you? If you're not sure you're saved and God spoke to your heart today, would you let me pray for you? Would you just by putting up your hand right now with every head bowed, no one looking around but me, you just say, Bob, pray for me. I'm not sure if I died right now, I'd go to heaven. Here's my hand. Anybody? I'm not sure if I died right now. God bless you, son. Anybody else? Anybody else? I'm not sure if I died right now. God spoke to my heart today, and here I am. And I, I just want God to pray for me. I want to be better at everything that I do. Here's my hand. Anybody? Just wait for a second. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And these are good people. And I thank you for the fact, Lord, that they're all saved today. And I pray, Father, that based on what we've said today, that Holy Spirit of God would do the work and touch these lives and let these good
good young men today, Lord. Good men. They're good men, Lord. There's not a bad one in the bunch. They're just not. I know a bad man when I see one. We don't have any. But help them get the right definitions. Help me to help them. Help me to love them. Help nobody to ever point their finger at them or castigate them, but to help them. Now, if they don't want help, Lord, that's another thing, but I don't even believe that. They wouldn't stay here and put up with this abuse week after week if they didn't want some change in their life. And let them know that I'm here to help them. Lord, I pray for the young ladies, Lord, that, that help them. Help them understand their role. Help them understand what they can do, what they can't do. And help them get into a better mindset of where they're at and what they can do and how to pray and, and how to be the witness and how to be everything that God wants them to be. And Lord, we don't have any bad women here. I don't believe that. I just, I've been around people for too long. I can spot them on my way. We don't have any bad women here. We just got good people who many times get caught up in the things of the world and, and make bad choices. We've all done that. I've done that. And Lord, nobody can stand and point their finger at anybody else and, and, and for what they've done. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God every day. But Lord, help us to get back to a common ground with the Bible. Help those of us who have learned our lessons. Help those who have yet not learned theirs. Help us to reach out and to be there and to love them and to take the Word of God, to make them part of our family, to show them the truth and the beauty of God's Word. And Lord, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Bless all the events today. Bless today at 5 as we, those that want to meet together at the park to have a great time and for tomorrow and all of the things that need to be done and just thank you for all that pitch in and make this a great day for our church, for the visitors that come. Let them leave knowing that we do care about them, that we care about who they are. We care about their walk with God and we love them. And Lord, uh, the messages may not always be easy, but they'll always be bathed in love and prayer and for the care of, of others in need. And we'll thank you now and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. John Christensen wants to meet his people up here for the crew. Don't forget, if you want to come to the party and haven't seen me, I see Jamie's back there. Go catch with her back there. She'll go out to the table out there. And um, God bless you. I'll see you this afternoon, those who want to come. My guys that are going to cook with me, be it, be it Steve Brackeen's at 7 in the morning. Uh, and the ladies, I'll see you at 2 o'clock here at my house. God bless you. You're dismissed.